Good morning, everyone. I'm Bear Kalesqua. I'm the Director of Communications here at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We, First UU, are a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for personal truth and meaning. We welcome each and every one of you here. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Livestream, for joining us, too. I would especially like to welcome our visitors this morning. We come from a long tradition of seeing the spark of the divine in everybody. It is in that tradition that I ask you now to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us. In our Unitarian Universalist tradition, churches begin their services by lighting their chalice. It's a symbol of our faith and reminds us of that spark within each other. It reminds us to be present in the moment. So please, say with me the words by which we light our chalice, which are printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is a responsive reading that is included in your order of service, titled, Open Our Hearts with Love, by Naomi King. If you would please read the italicized text. When the world's violence shatters the joy of a moment, we pause and reach out for the hands that remain When despair rises as a monster from the deep and drags down one of our own, our answer is that? When hatred and anger rage in fire and suffering, we bend to pick up the wounded, to bind up ourselves and... When fear whispers, build more gates and more locks, the blessed are those who defend themselves. We rock these fears to sleep and let them rest as... People will do unspeakably cruel and horrible things. We know this fact. We live and die this daily. All around the world, in every community, and every wasteland. But we know the answer is found only with one action. And so, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love can be healed. This is the truth we affirm. We live with courage and with a wider and wider circle of that force that bends our lives to ones of mercy justice, and compassion. It's the truth. Just by being born, you are loved. There is something within you and every person that can be loved. In love, we pray for those families, those individuals, all the persons here and everywhere who are desperately sure that there is not 
enough love in the world for them to have some, who are desperately sure that they do not matter. In love with life, in love with the beloved, we turn to answer that desperation with assurance. You are loved. You are lovable. We will and do love you. Now, attend to your life's work to love. It's the only legacy that matters. Um. We are a pluralistic church. We have members who span the world religions and spiritualities, humanism, atheism. Often, this fact leads people to wonder, so what keeps you together? Good question. It's our mission. It's what we as a community chose, voted on, and vow to hold. And once construction ends, we will put it back on the wall (laughs) where it used to be. For now, it's just in your order of service, conveniently. And I would like for you to affirm it with me. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our meditation reading this morning is titled, Anyone's Ministry, by Gordon B. McKeeman. Ministry is a quality of relationship between and among human beings that beckons forth hidden possibilities. It is inviting people into deeper, more constant, more reverent relationship with the world and with one another. It is carrying forward a long heritage of hope and liberation that has dignified and informed the human venture over many centuries. It is being present with two and four others in their terrors and torments, in their grief, misery, and pain. It is knowing that those feelings are our feelings too. It is celebrating the triumphs of the human spirit, the miracles of birth and life, the wonders of devotion and sacrifice. It is witnessing to life-enhancing values, speaking truth to power, standing for human dignity and equity, for compassion and aspiration. It is believing in life in the presence of death, in struggling for human responsibility against principalities and structures that ignore humaneness and become instruments of death. It is all this and much, much more, more than all of them, present in the wordless, the unspoken, the ineffable. It is speaking and living the highest we know, and living with the knowledge that it is never as deep or as wide or as high as we wish. Whenever there is a meeting that summons us to our better selves, whenever our lostness is found, our fragments are united, or our wounds begin healing, 
Our spines stiffen and our muscles grow strong for the task. There is ministry. Now's the point of the service where we quiet ourselves. We meet in meditation, in prayer. Speak or listen to God as we understand God, or follow our breath in and out in our moment of companionable silence. I ask you to breathe with me deeply and full as we enter the silence together, remembering that in this space, the sounds of life and small children are all part of the sacred quiet. Um, this is my second sermon since seminary. The first one was an hour ago. So, (laughs) getting experience, let me tell you. Especially considering I went for an academic degree. So, interesting. But in preparation for this sermon, I still followed, you know, the standard drill because I went to a Presbyterian school. And Presbyterians like research. Kind of. I did what every good Presbyterian seminarian would do, and I grabbed my own notes and started reading through them, hoping something would spark in my head, hoping that maybe as I flipped through those dozens and dozens and dozens of notebooks, oh my gosh, uh, that a page would literally fly out right in front of my face and tell me it was the perfect place from which to draw my sermon. It did not. Not surprising, Harry Potter let me down again. (laughs) But in all that searching and all that reading, I was reminded of a lot of things, and I found one quote from one of my favorite Christian theologians, which I know, tough to say, who wrote, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and the needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of humanity. This is what love looks like. I was surprised to hear such words from St. Augustine, but at the same time, they were perfect. Because there I was, writing and writing and writing since November... (laughs) trying to fight with my overall theme of the holiness of hands. Trying to write my sermon that also needed to involve the life and ministry of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for a sermon about uplifting one another and lending a helping hand for a sermon about mountains and valleys and marches and hope and distress. And I really started to feel a lot like Maria from The Sound of Music. You know, up on the hill, dressed like a nun, spinning around while the camera catches my face just perfectly as I belt out, the hills are alive with the sound of kitchen sink sermons. I couldn't have that. So I rewrote this thing 30 times. I'm not one to lead the expedition into theological territory. I leave that to our pastors. We pay them for that. But I do believe myself to be an adequate enough Sherpa. And that's why there were so many rewrites. (laughs) 
I was trying to pack the necessary while bringing as little extra weight as possible. Because sometimes, even with sermon writing, the march is long. The biggest lesson I wanted to impress here is that change begins the moment we decide to touch the divine. Using the works of our hands and the strength of our commitment to lift our world to that higher place. With our hands, we share our power, our energy, our warmth and coolness. They open our personal bubbles. They welcome and guide. They stop and redirect. Hands can break barriers. They can bring us closer together, physically and spiritually. When I was younger, much younger, I used to sit on a big metal stool and watch my mother's mothers, Trella and Noni, Mechala, getting ready for the Sabbath. Or my father's mother, Maria Josefina, making tortillas and tortas, watching their hands make these things so expertly, knowing that they would nourish the family in more ways than one. I would often sit quietly on the floor watching my father as he played his guitar or worked on his own sermons, pouring through concordance after concordance in dozens of languages. I loved watching my mom draw. She was an artist, and I, I thought it was amazing. She could paint and sculpt pretty much anything. Even butter was not exempt. <laughs> she chiseled and sandblasted headstones into shape. She confidently worked on car engines. She built a shed. Her hands clasped together in earnest prayer at temple. They protected me fiercely. The one thing I learned from her is that one of the hardest things to draw as an artist is hands, because they're magnificent, but they are weird. <laughs> hands not only touch, they express some of our deepest emotions in ways our words fail. They can show hatred, concern, disgust, and grief. The last couple of years, I have seen the most protesting of my life. Women marching for their rights. People of color marching for their rights. Gays and lesbians marching for our rights. When I've seen those people protesting, of course, the thing I look for is what they're doing with their hands. Again, fascinated by them. Were they raised in fist of rebellion? Were they lifted in protection? Were they begging for an ear of mercy and of compassion and of humanity? I have held hands in those protests with those I love and with those that I was finding out I didn't have to know to love as we marched for our lives, for our rights, for the rights of others, and for the memory of wrongs needing to be made right. As a chaplain... In turn, more than once, I held the hands, still warm but cooling rapidly, of people who otherwise would have been alone at their death. They had, thankfully, my hands, have said hello far more than they have said goodbye. For that I am grateful. I have felt 
hands raised in anger and in love and in compassion and in companionship. I've gotten to pick up children who have fallen and wiped away their tears. I've held sleeping babies and got to nuzzle them and smell their heads. I've thrown my hands high in celebration and joy. Our callings tend to be fueled by the same fires that flare over and over along our journeys. And these things right here, these hands, mostly on the inside, they have informed my calling in this world in some profound way. And because of all this, they're the tools that I choose to empower our communal calling, tasked to do the work of care the UUs, to help support one another in our journeys out of the dark, out of these dark valleys, and onto the highest plains, the mountains of hope. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once very memorably spoke about being lifted up by his God and standing at that mountain top hoping one day for all the people to see the promised land that lies beyond. However, in that same vision, he also recognized that in order to get to the mountaintop, we must first make it through the valley. And that valley, that valley is wide. And it is a dark place that can feel immeasurably deep, from which so many of us feel we may never see ourselves free. Dr. King knew a lot about time spent there. His valley moments were many and included things like three separate 108-mile round trips from Selma to Montgomery and back. All for the right to vote. They included threats to his wife, to his children, to his life. It included suicide attempts as a child, deep depression through his entire life, so many sorrows and heartbreaks and losses, but he knew that only in the darkest night can we still see the stars. His valley was low, but his vision was high. He saw in his ministry the works that represented and fought for the voiceless and the erased, the abused and the forgotten. He saw his work as a minister in the light of the duty to humanity, to equality and compassionate care for others. And now I feel the need to warn you, I'm going to quote the Bible, but it's okay. It's the Bible according to Bear. So bear with me. <laughs> Dr. King was fond of the parable about the Good Samaritan. It's found in the book of Luke. Um, the story is basically, there's Jesus, a rabbi, doing his rabbi thing, and teaching in the temple. And there's a guy there. He's a lawyer slash, like, scribe. The Greek is kind of weird about that word, so it's lawyer, scribe, guy. Meaning that he knew the Torah inside and out. By heart, he knew the words. Words. 
And he decided to test Jesus on his knowledge and maybe get him to slip up on his own teachings about giving ourselves over to the care and the service of others. So he asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit the promises of eternal life? Rabbi Jesus responded with a question, because that's how rabbis do rabbi things. Uh, Not that I know from growing up in a Jewish family. (laughs) So Jesus replies, what does the law say we're supposed to do? The lawyer going, oh, I know the law. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Jesus looked at him, probably in some, I'm so tired, why are you asking me this? You know the answer to your own question, he said, so go and do what it is you know you're supposed to be doing. But, of course, the lawyer-scribe guy wanted to make sure he heard Jesus correctly and asked him, well, who is my neighbor? Ignoring the obvious, probably just blinking in silence for a moment, Jesus then did the Jesus thing and told a parable. A man was walking down the sloped, windy, seriously scary road from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked by robbers who took everything and left him for dead. A priest walked by, probably on his way to the temple, we can always guess, and did what he needed to do, apparently, and passed on the other side of the road. Then a Levite came along. And a Levite, they were usually the helpers in the temple, so he was probably also trying to get to the temple, probably also following his laws, maybe, we cannot know, and passed on the other side of the road. But then a man from Samaria came along. He saw this guy. He was like, oh my gosh. And him being a different race, a different religion, and not hung up on Levitical law, stopped, pitied him, cleaned and bound his wounds, put him on his animal, took him to an inn, and paid for him to be taken care of. I'm going to skip a few lines here. Then Jesus looked at the, at the lawyer, scribe, And asked, out of those three, which of these do you think was the neighbor to this man? The lawyer replied, well, the one who showed him compassion. Jesus, at this point, rubbing his temples more than likely, finally said, go and do the same. Just go and do it. That's all you have to do. Be compassion. Be the neighbor. Dr. King would stop often after preaching on this, which he did many times, and pondered the idea of what was meant by the Levite and the priest not stopping to help this man wounded on the side of the road. He would propose that, as others quite often would, that perhaps they were busy, or there were laws forbidding them helping. But he didn't dwell on that question or castigate the people who were following the laws of their religion. He wasn't worried about them. He was worried... Not worried. He was interested in the resolution. He was interested in the man from Samaria who stopped and cared for a stranger in need, lying beaten on the street, naked and bleeding. Dr. King said he saw that unlike the Levite and priest who asked, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan 
thought, if I don't stop and help this man, what will happen to him? For my own purposes here, I choose to see these questions in my own UU-esque secular humanist way with, if we do not take the time to look outside of our small bubble of this world in which we live and see the greater body of humanity that surrounds us, if we do not recognize our own neighbors, then how do we fulfill our mission, our principles, and how do we achieve the great aspiration of a truly full, supported, and inclusive, beloved community? In our hands, personal and communal, lies the power to see the dream through to take the ink of our work and tattoo it on our hearts so that every moment of our lives is filled with the lifeblood of love and compassion, strength and unity. To work together and nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. He said, we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that humanity has been trying to grapple with through history. But the the demands of the time didn't force them to do it. Our survival demands that we do this now. We must grapple for each other. This great power is ours for the giving and the taking, And it is our duty as human beings, participants in this world, to reach out and touch one another's lives. We are to leave an indelible impression of care and faithful works upon the face of this world. To own the good within ourselves and see it manifest outward like sparks from our fingers. Dr. King reminds us that we have two hands. One for giving and one for receiving. We aren't silos to hoard away our gifts. We are channels expressly made to share that great wealth of humanity. Dr. King didn't want us to dwell in the valley. He didn't want us to live defeated and lost. That wasn't his idea of our purpose in life. His eyes saw that higher place for us. And That higher place is only reached by marching boldly forward as we climb up to the mountaintop with our neighbor, the folks who trudge and groan for mercy in their own depths, our siblings in this thing called life. Because if we do not go with our neighbor, if one is left behind, we are all still in the valley. So we must go and body our spirit upon the shoulders of those who have come before us and continue to raise ourselves generation by generation, higher and higher out of our past that kept us separated and closed off from the broad spectrum of humanity. He said of his work in his final speech that we've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter because I've been to the mountaintop. I've been allowed to go up to the mountain, and I have looked over, and I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. 
So we must stand there and gasp together at the utter potential and beauty of the world that is then set wide before us when we finally make it. Dr. King dreamed that one day we would climb to that higher place and then set out for the promised land of equity and equality and one day uh, sit and listen to one another at the table, embrace one another in common humanity as we finally, finally are able to see that together we are free. Together we are free. And all because we chose to reach out, touch another soul, and do the work required to make a difference. Who is my neighbor, we ask. You already know the answer to the question. Go and do what you know you need to do. I ask you now to say the words by which we extinguish our chalice. They're found in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Be dangerously unselfish. Do good recklessly. Be kind with abandon. Love brazenly. Be flagrant in your generosity. Dig a deep well from which you draw your benevolence. You never know who still dwells in the valley. Don't make life harder for either one of you. Reach out, take a hand, and rise together so that we may all see the dawn break at the mountaintop. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.